Hey everyone, this is Greg Rogers from Securing America's Future Energy, or Safe Craig. Uh, we have an exciting episode ahead uh, with Matthew Capucci from the Washington Post and Capital Weather Gang. Uh, we recorded this back in October of 2019, uh, mea culpa on the uh, late release. Before we jump in, I want to let everyone know that we will be at the uh, Transportation Research Board Annual Meeting and Transportation Camp uh, this month. Uh, so if you'll be around, uh, come say hello, and also stay tuned for some great episodes that we're recording with uh, experts across the field uh, throughout the conference. And we'll be rolling those out uh, throughout the month, so uh, stay tuned for those. And before we jump in, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Association of American Railroads. Uh, and here's a message from AAR. What will the future of transportation look like? The Association of American Railroads believes it'll be on rails. Every day, freight rail is integrating technology that makes its 140,000-mile network greener, safer, and more efficient than the alternatives. Learn how they're delivering the future today at AAR.org. And with that, let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Mobility Podcast. It's good to be back. This is Greg Rodriguez, now with Stantec. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, this is Greg Rogers with Securing America's Future Energy, and we can let you do the, uh, the disclaimer this time. Even though I'm not a practicing attorney, I will always abide by the rule that views are our own. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so today we're really excited to have uh, kind of a, a new twist on our discussion around transportation innovation, and now we're bringing resiliency and weather into the conversation. So we're excited to have Matthew Capucci with us here today. Uh, meteorolo meteorologist with the Capital Weather Gang of the Washington Post. So, Matthew, thank you for being with us today. And, you know, tell us a little about yourself. How did you get involved in the world of meteorology? Yeah, great question. I've loved it since day one. When I was two years old, I'd run outside and just try to look at the clouds, everything like that. I was obsessed with the anemometers spinning on people's roofs. When I was seven, I saved up my money to buy a video camera so I could storm chase and ride around the neighborhood in a metal bicycle actually chasing the storms. And it's been like that ever since. I've been through so many hailstorms that my truck looks like it parked in the driving range. Love tornadoes, hurricanes, thunder snow is one of my favorites, and I really have loved it since day one. So there are a couple of really big words that you use that have no idea what you're talking about. So what was spinning on top of the uh, roof? Ah, yes, the anemometer. So you look at people, it's, it's kind of like a wind vane, but it tells you wind speed. So it looks like someone took a couple of those little ketchup cup type things, taped them to straws, and put them on a roof. So it spins around, it gives you the wind speed, and tells you some useful information. I thought that was how you measure animosity. <laughs> well, I'll use it on my sister. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's fun because usually we're talking transportation and using, using word like, words like AVs and not explaining that means autonomous vehicles. So uh -huh. it's very exciting that you're going to be able to teach us a new vocabulary today. Um, and, you know, before, as we were warming up for the discussion today, I mean, you were showing us videos of you storm chasing uh, in a vehicle, cracking windows, getting cracks in in your truck on the top that sounded like it was a brand new truck. I mean, what's it like storm chasing? I mean, is, I assume there's an adrenaline rush. What, what, what are you doing out there? And is that the future of mobility? <laughs> <laughs> Depends how many more dents I get. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. It's so hurry up and wait in that you go out there and it's over the course of several days. So like five days in advance, I'll kind of generally know if there's a pattern favorable for severe weather, but it's somewhere across Tornado Alley which stretches from Texas all the way up through Oklahoma, Kansas, and eventually Nebraska. So I know some place will be impacted. Three days before, I can kind of key in into a general region, the northern plains, the southern plains, the high plains, and then maybe a day, day and a half before, I'll say, okay, this part of this state tomorrow will be impacted, and I'll drive there. And then you essentially wait, and you wait, and you wait, 
and you're out there, it's perfectly sunny the day of most of the time because you're waiting for what's called the cap to break. The cap being a layer of warm air above the ground, a couple thousand feet up, and that prevents storm growth all day long until all of a sudden the cap breaks, you get storms to develop explosively. So you'll go to where you think the first storm will fire when the cap breaks. And it's kind of like trying to predict where the first bubble will go up in a pot of boiling water. It's very challenging. And once you get in a storm, you're trying to position yourself in the right way to make sure you can either see the tornado or be near to photograph it. But you're also dodging the hazards, the flooding range, uh, rather the flooding rain, the lightning, the hail, which is going to beat the bejesus out of your vehicle, and especially the other chasers, too. We have something called chaser convergence, where you'll have scores of storm chasers out there all clogging the roads at the same time. And so it's almost like a game where you'll try to get to the right area to see the right things, but minimize the hazards and minimize the obstacles you encounter on the way. So it sounds like we have a first new term, storm chaser congestion. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so when you're doing this, I mean, these these aren't routes. Are these routes that are closed to vehicles, or I mean, are are, are roads not closed and you're just able to do this at yeah, your so own the risk? Yeah, road network out there is in pretty rough shape. I mean, they do have some main roads, but you got to keep in mind a lot of this is farm country. So they have, for the most part, a one mile by one mile grid, and it's largely dirt roads. So they're open to the public, but these roads are very rural. They can't hi- uh, they can't handle large capacity of vehicles, a lot of people. And when you have a situation where there's a storm unfolding, you know, all the chasers want to be there. So you'll have dozens, sometimes even more than a hundred cars all lined up, all going after the same storm. It's gotten a lot worse in recent years because of cell phones. Now anyone who has a cell phone connection thinks they can storm chase. And to an extent they can, it's a question of whether or not they should be doing it. But the roads out there can get in pretty rough shape quickly, especially when you have the clogging from the chaser convergence and the roads turning to mud and clay and just a mess when the rains come down. Do you have uh, resistance from first responders who just don't want you to go in? I mean, what's that relationship like? The first responders are typically there after we're there, and at times we're often the first responders. You know, if there's a major, major weather situation that impacts the community, storm chasers tend to be in the front lines because they've already been there for the storm. They're oftentimes there for the cleanup, the rescue, and the recovery missions afterwards. So for the most part, we have a great relationship with first responders. It's also integral for storm chasers to be out there, granted not in the capacity, not in the quantity they are now, because when you have ground truth, when you have those eyes on the ground, it's a lot easier to know something is happening, where it's happening, and to be able to warn folks downwind that it's coming their way. What can you learn from being there in person versus what you can learn, say, through Doppler radar or things like that? It's kind of like your favorite restaurant. I'm sure you everyone has their favorite restaurant. Now imagine going up to the restaurant, just about going to walk in and then staring at the menu and going, oh, that looks good, and your mouth watering, and then you turn around and go home. You didn't really have the experience of ordering from that restaurant versus you go in, you get the food, and you indulge in that experience. And the same is true storm chasing. So there's naturally you know, the thrill, the enjoyment, and just the grandeur of seeing Mother Nature at its most extreme and the inherent scientific beauty that lies there as well. But at the same time, it's also an exercise for me too to be out there, to be putting together forecasts for days in advance, to realize the fruits of my own forecast, to potentially you know, make mistakes, learn from them, or to get in the right place at the right time. So it's really like exercising one's forecast abilities, just like an athlete would go through practice runs. This is kind of our way to improve our forecasting skills in the field. Mm-hmm. That's great. So one of the reasons I asked you to be on the show today is to kind of talk about this word resiliency that's been creeping into the transportation discussion. And, you know, I, I mean, I've noticed that it seems like our weather events are becoming much more intense. 
Um, so I'm curious, I mean, are you seeing any weather-related trends, especially in the Gulf Coast or down in Florida, that maybe we should be thinking about as we think about improving our infrastructure, you know, planning new transportation projects, building new rail lines? I mean, is there any any tips uh, you might be able to provide based on the trends you're seeing? Yeah, very much so. I think when people think about climate change, the way the media typically communicates it is just wrong and, and backwards as to the way we should be communicating it to get the most impactful coverage. I mean, no one cares about a half degree increase or a two millimeter increase in sea levels. I mean, you walk into a room, you can't tell if it's half a degree warmer or cooler than it was 10 minutes ago. And so I think people oftentimes look at climate change and that's the way they view it. They don't view it as it impacting them the way it really does, which is in the manifestation of more severe weather, more extreme weather. And, you know, those are the things that really get to people. And it only takes one event that can be catalyzed by or boosted by climate change to really take a toll. We talk about, let's say, rainfall, for instance. You know, what was a one in 500 year rainfall event down in Texas might be now a one in 100 year rainfall event. So it's becoming increasingly common. We're seeing top tier rain events like Harvey, Irma, you know, Imelda just recently really dominating the news more and more. And let's talk Houston for a second. Houston, since 1970, has increased in temperature about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. That's noteworthy, but what's more noteworthy is a 12% increase in rainfall that goes with a temperature jump like that. And so they've seen a doubling in the top 1% of rainfall events since just 2000. They're seeing about 6 to 8 inches more rainfall per year now than they were just 30, 40 years ago. And that's in one generation's, two generations' time, which is the equivalent of 40 to 50 extra days of precipitation, if not more, every year. And couple that with infrastructure, the way that they're building rail networks, the way they're building roadways, everything like that, especially all the cement they put down in urban areas, you know, they're making flooding significantly more likely, which flooding, I think, will be the biggest issue in many areas thanks to climate change. It's all about whether or not people have too much rainfall or too little rainfall. Let's talk hurricanes for a second. Hurricanes are becoming increasingly strong. It's a trend we've already seen, we're continuing to see now. You know, for each year out of the past, uh, the past four hurricane seasons, we've seen at least one Category 5 hurricane. Since 1950-ish, we've seen only about 34, 35 Category 5. So to see six in the past four years is exceptional. We've never had a series of four seasons in a row with a Category 5. And you know, it's impossible to connect one event to climate change, but the fingerprint is there. To see these top-tier storms becoming more common, to see them, you know, wreaking more havoc, to be growing a bit in size, but especially in terms of rainfall, the winds inside the storms are getting stronger. And we're also seeing a trend for these storms to undergo what's called rapid intensification more often. So they'll increase in strength very quickly in 24 hours or less, sometimes 40, 50 miles an hour or more. We saw that with Harvey, we saw that with Michael just last year in, in Florida. And so these are the events that we need to be planning for. What was a 100-year event is no longer a 100-year event, and we have to make sure that our infrastructure evolves quicker than the changing conditions in order that we're prepared for a new reality. So you were just talking about storms rapidly intensifying. I think the other thing we saw in a couple storms recently is them being slow moving or essentially parking over an area. I mean, is, is there a connection there to climate change or, um, you know, the water temperatures, anything like that? Yeah, anecdotally, it is something we've seen over the past, say, 40 years or so. It seems like the storms are moving significantly more slowly, especially as they approach the mainland United States. And when you have a hurricane or anything like that, tropical cyclone, nearing a major coast, if it slows down, A, you get more rainfall, but B, 
yearn to those extreme winds for longer. We saw that with Dorian back in September of this year when it parked over the same areas in Grand Bahama and Abaco Island for upwards of 36 hours. Some places saw Category 3 or worse winds for that long. And so something we're seeing, we're not exactly sure as to the science of why it's happening yet. We know that it's happening. We know it's likely associated with climate change, but there's still a lot in the way of attribution studies that needs to be done in order to firmly connect that link. That's great. So since we're on the topic of studies and research, you know, again, a lot of our listeners are transportation planners and a lot of communities are redoing their long range transportation plans, rethinking new rail lines, rethinking new roads, rethinking incorporation of smart mobility. I mean, is there anywhere they can go to maybe start looking at research or a place where they can understand models around changing climate to maybe start to incorporate that into transportation planning? Yeah, I'd say a state climatologist is a great way to go about it, that or even local academia. You know, every state has a climatologist who manages records from the past. And so looking at historical trends and seeing how those trends have changed over time is a great way to go about it. But you also want trends into the future. And I know oftentimes with the climate change discussion, there's almost number overload in that there's so much good data out there, it's very easy to become overwhelmed. And so you want to find someone who is qualified to interpret that for you, what it means in terms of planning, what it means in terms of realizing different impacts. And so you want to make sure you connect yourself with an expert in climate and perhaps someone who is at the intersection of urban planning and climate as well. It's extremely important going forward in the future. Let's look at Miami, for instance. They're seeing routine flooding now every month of every year, just in the middle of you know regular, typical sunny days, all thanks to king tide flooding. The sea levels there in Miami have risen about six inches just since about 1995, and that means the top, say, 1% of all flooding events are now becoming 12 times more common. And so flooding there is routine. It's inundating coastal areas, and you have roads that are no longer accessible. And some of these are fairly new roads, and this was a trend that would have very easily been able to be you know, spotted in advance and something that could have been corrected sooner had people looked into it more, had people done kind of the background homework. And it's, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. So it's important that people know what they're up against and plan for it accordingly, better proactively than reactively. I mean, this is really interesting because, I mean, so we do a lot of conversations around autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and thinking about even things like dockless scooters uh, that we all see uh, scooting around and, and probably not the safest we're <laughs> doing it in rain and well, in the freezing cold. Not great uh, for evacuations. Yeah, not yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. Anyway. We're a poncho. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, so there's having worked at a transportation planning agency, um, modeling is a big part of thinking about how are users going to use transportation, which then is correlated with getting transportation funding for federal funding related to transit projects. And here, I mean, now we're talking about modeling uh, for the unknown around climate change, the same way these modelers are dealing for unknowns around how new innovations like autonomous vehicles interact in our cities. So I guess it's a long way of me saying sorry to our (laughs) listeners to add another element that we need to be thinking about. On the other hand, I mean, maybe this is another person. I mean, we talk about autonomous vehicle working groups, task forces. We're talking about, you know, you talk about new things like bringing law enforcement into those conversations, now bringing insurance agencies. Now, I mean, there's this opportunity, I think, to bring in this this climatologist perspective, which I hadn't thought about until this conversation right now. Really interesting. 
Yeah, and it's it's especially interesting because this this hurricane season seemed to prompt a lot of think pieces about how AVs can help with emergency evacuations. Yep. Um, which um, you know we usually just use regular passenger cars for that, and in some cases, um, cities use buses to evacuate folks. Yeah. I understand. It was in was that in Houston um, recently? Are, are you familiar with this? I- I don't know which city it was. Yeah, but I remember seeing these videos of just like packed buses, like going yeah. over highways trying to do these evacuations. Well, to that end, you know, transportation plays a huge role in the evacuations. We look at Rita back in 2005 right. in in Texas, in Houston. It was a disaster when they tried to evacuate. It looked like a major hurricane was coming to the city. More people died in the evacuation process due to car accidents, due to you know medical emergencies on the highways that were clogged than from the actual storm itself. And that's part of the reason the city didn't evacuate during Houston. So if there's a way to cut back on the inefficiencies of evacuation, both economically and from a transportation standpoint, AVs could be a great way to do it. Well, and I think that's interesting, too. I mean, when you were talking about the hurricane chasing and now we're talking about evacuations, one of the questions I had written down was, you know, what pressure is on you to make sure you get that right of where the storm is headed? Um, And what opportunities do you see around maybe syncing technology with emergency alerts with kind of the work you're doing? Could we do it better? We absolutely could. And it's, you know, as a meteorologist, you always walk a fine line between darned if you do, darned if you don't. If you pull the trigger, if you put out a forecast that spurs an evacuation and the storm doesn't happen, then obviously all the blame is going to fall on you. If you put out a forecast that says an evacuation is not necessary and one was, that has even more significant impact. So there's no real good way to go about it because a meteorologist game is essentially just trying to interpret uncertainty to quantify it and to help decision makers to make decisions based on that uncertainty and the best available information at the time. And so in terms of emergency alerts, we do the best we can with the information we have at the time. It's just tricky because even though we're getting better, we don't have the skill to make those real definitive calls until sometimes even only 36 hours in advance. You know, Hurricane Michael was a tropical storm two days before it made landfall as a Category 5. Things evolved extremely quickly during that time period. And unfortunately, even though the science is getting better, which is not to the point yet where we need to be in order to really streamline that evacuation process from a forecast standpoint. Yeah. And weather is weather. I mean, yeah. nature is nature. It's, it's, it can't really control things. Same way. I mean, again, not to make a parallel to autonomous vehicles, but like <laughs> artificial intelligence. I mean, we're starting, still trying to understand how that, beha- how that predictive analytics mm-hmm. is starting to work. And mm-hmm. I mean, you can't necessarily predict what a human's going to do 100% at a time, the same way you can't predict what a hurricane's they do 100% at a time. If I could predict human beings as well as I could predict <laughs> the weather, I'd have a girlfriend by now. <laughs> oh. oh, way to bring well, it back. Well, single. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was funny, too. You're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Just makes me think of every winter, some mayor yep. makes the horrible call not to close the roads or not to deploy all the snow plows. Mm-hmm. They get in trouble. Or... They have them all ready to go. Government gets shut down. Roads are all iced. And then it's the most beautiful day that winter. Yeah. It's all down the rain, (laughs) snow line. It's so frustrating, especially in places like D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. You're right near the coast. You're right on the rain, snow line. A jog back or forth, east or west of only 10, 15 miles can make all the difference in precipitation types. So these are the kind of uncertainties we deal with that make it such a challenging and and times rewarding, but most of the time just challenging and hair-pulling exercise that we have to do. Yeah. Um, do you see any opportunities, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go political right now, but just 
you know, one thing again that we we've been kind of working on is how do we educate lawmakers around technology and transportation? You know, are there opportunities to better educate lawmakers around you know the science of weather? Um, and maybe science is the wrong word, but just understanding how weather works because I'm learning so much today and it doesn't even have to do with dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. Just the, all the effort that goes into predicting weather, do you see any opportunities for you know, more education, not only of lawmakers, but just the country? I think so, and I think part of the reason why we're not as far along in terms of educating the public about weather as I'd like to be is that so often now people are looking down at their smartphones. Everyone's looking down all the time. They're living life through a viewfinder. And I wish more often people would just take time to look up in the sky to see what it is out there and just be curious, you know, like we all were when we were six-year-olds. And, you know, I, I try to plug that in the radio from time to time when I do my radio hits. But I think it's vital that if people have these curiosities, if they have questions they're actively going to seek answers to, if we can be there to provide the answers to the questions they may be curious about or they may be asking, it's a great way for us to slip a bit of education in there and to help people learn passively, if not actively. It's kind of like slipping vegetables into a kid's meal. You, you got to sneak it in there somehow. And, but if you do, you'll, they'll, they'll realize the effects, whether or not they know they're getting it. That's kind of the funny thing, right? I mean, I remember, um, you know, in kindergarten, you learn, uh, this is what a cumulus cloud is. This is what a, what is it, nebulous? Whatever it might be. <laughs> but, you know, then we don't get that afterwards. Yeah. And so just having just a little bit of that, I think, could be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I appreciate the point about the phones and being a listener of uh, WAMU and and the stuff that the Capital Weather Gang does and the refreshing reports that you've brought around, um, you, you have said, you know, tonight's going to be a great night. Put the phone down, look up, look up at the stars. Yep. Um, and I do think, you know, that is one of the challenges around technology and innovation and everything that could be coming. And one of my concerns around autonomous vehicles is we're going to be okay commuting longer and sitting in vehicles because we'll have infotainment and be able to... Uh, work or sleep in our cars as opposed to you know being outside and being with each other which is one of the reasons tomorrow I'm super excited yes that you know DC is shutting down three miles of Georgia Avenue oh I didn't know that yeah so uh, now I have weekend plans there you go exactly so just like you say you know if if, uh, it's gonna be nice weather tomorrow and you usually say sometimes you don't have plans invite you (laughs) yes we're inviting you to come and walk Georgia (laughs) Avenue for three miles and I mean just to take back a road and hopefully also the the community building element that I think comes with uh, being outside and being in a public space together and enjoying nice weather Mm -hmm. Um, and on the weather note so you know one of the questions I did have since going back to infrastructure is you know one of the things I know just enough to be dangerous about pavement but I know that pavement does not like extreme weather changes. And so it doesn't like going from hot to cold. And even, I mean, even this morning, I think we started off in the 70s. And I think you can tell me better. We're supposed to drop down into the mid 40s tonight based on the weather weather forecast. Yeah, I'm forecasting a low of 56 here in the city. But we will drop down pretty quickly. <laughs> but the cool thing is this morning we had a dew point of 70. And by lunchtime we had a dew point of 50, which means we slashed the humidity in the air by half, which is pretty noteworthy. But yeah, like you said, the pavement does not like temperature swings. It has a low specific heat capacity, which means you put just a little bit of heat in there, that pavement's gonna skyrocket in temperature, and likewise it can cool off pretty quickly as well. So it's susceptible to those big swings, and that allows it at night, once the temperature outside cools down, to really hold on to that heat, and to keep cities in particular warm at night. And that's one of the symptoms we're seeing with climate change, also impacted by the urban heat island effect. 
No, and and so yeah, so I mean, again, just just these things we need to be thinking about. I think as as we're moving forward, and I mean, Transportation Research Board (TRB) is a has an annual conference every January, which has um, you know sessions from pavement to autonomous vehicles. I assume space travel is probably uh, going to be a hot topic in the next yeah, few years, and probably. especially with Space Force. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Who owns space? Um, yeah. It, you know, I'm actually, after this conversation, I, I might have to actually go to a couple of those sessions to see if this conversation is happening. Yeah, usually I'm avoiding the ones about asphalt and concrete because usually the concrete and uh, and asphalt people are fighting each other in them. So, uh, but I think it'd be interesting to actually go to one this time. Well, yeah, and then it explains, <laughs> I mean, you think about, you know, now we see uh, tire makers like Continental mm-hmm. getting more involved around autonomous vehicles and thinking about, you know, what are the type of new composures of the tires are going to be needed to support these different vehicles. I mean, mm-hmm. I think everybody accepts they're going to have different designs. And again, these extreme, if weather's going to be hotter in different parts of the country, what does an all-weather tire mean now? What is, are you going to need special summer tires if it's going to keep getting hotter, yep. more extreme winters? Uh, I don't yeah. know. It's going to be interesting uh, mm-hmm. to kind of see where we evolve to. Mm-hmm. It's going to make biking to work um, a little bit more uncomfortable, but it's fine. Yeah. I mean, even, and again, I think one of the things, you know, we we noted this week was 90 degrees here in DC. Yeah. Four inches of, or four feet of snow in Montana. Yeah. So that's one thing that, well, we can't directly connect to climate change. We can say these sorts of things are becoming increasingly common. These nationwide divides, if you will, the the dipoles, where one side is completely baking in the heat and the other side is frigid underneath a lobe of what can sometimes be the polar vortex or just natural cold. And that's thanks to something we jokingly call jet weirding, and that the jet stream is is this wavy river of air in the upper atmosphere that divides the cool air banked up to the north with the warmer air to the south. And the storms ride along the jet stream. Storms derive energy from the jet stream. That's why some of the mid-latitude storms get their wind from the jet stream. But with climate change, because the poles are warming much more quickly than the equator and equatorial regions, you're seeing that pole to equator temperature gradient, the change in temperature, weaken just a little bit. And that means the jet stream, whose job it is to transport heat, has to go a little bit further north, a little bit further south to do that. And so it's becoming wavier. And those waves are allowing much more uh, errant air masses to meander farther than they otherwise would. So you'll get a big wave in the jet stream, warm air from the tropics can ride all the way up to Canada or, or even sometimes the North Pole. And likewise, you can get pockets of cold air sinking all the way down to the tropics and the lower mid-latitudes. And so when you have these big ships, the extremely you know, high-end, either warm or cold waves, those are the things that are being favored thanks to climate change. People oftentimes don't associate increased snow with climate change or increased cold outbreaks. And in reality, that has to do with some of the dynamics of the polar vortex, how that's evolving. But yeah, we're seeing much more extreme weather on both sides of the spectrum. Wow. And also all this, I mean, the other thing I've noticed, you know, any of us that travel a lot, um, you know, that, that flight from the East Coast to West Coast, going West is a lot longer now. And I think that has to do with winds, right? And that's that's a tricky one. You know, recently back in February, we did an article where a Boeing 787 reached a speed of 831 miles per hour heading east over Pennsylvania, whereas going west, I can't even imagine how, how long that would take. So we're seeing some subtle changes in jet stream speed. Perhaps it's slowing down a little bit. I think it's it's too much of a stretch to try to connect that to specific airplane speeds. But we will say there's there are changes in the overall characteristic and the dynamic of the jet stream. It's just tough to say exactly how those are manifesting in, in that realm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all, all that's just interesting. I mean, you think about, we're now talking about um, unmanned aerial systems, drones deliveries from UPSs, FedExes. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to have more extreme wind events. I'm going to yeah. be a little concerned if I'm seeing those flying around above me. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, FAA will get their uh, UAS traffic <laughs> management done, and all of a sudden they're going to have to UAS extreme weather management. I mean, <laughs> I mean, all this, I, it all comes back maddening. to, uh, yeah, we're going to have to have a climatologist in everything now. Yeah, drone-proof umbrella. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't think people thought that becoming a weatherman uh, was a career-safe position. But it sounds like you are creating it. Well, some days I wonder. <laughs> but uh, since you're, you know, you're, you're fairly new to DC, uh, we've really enjoyed your refreshing uh, take on the weather that you've brought to WAMU and uh, to yeah. Washington I feel like Post. I should be getting ready in front of the mirror right now when I'm listening to your voice. Yeah, no, no it is. It <laughs> it is like yeah, you I'm just want to close your eyes and look yeah. forward to a nice cool breeze, <laughs> yeah. um, which I hope to experience outside tonight. So yes. it is cooling down <laughs> finally. But uh, so what is your transportation uh, mode of choice here in D.C. since being here? I am obsessed with the Metro. I, I love it. I, the Metro can do no wrong in my book. And I'm sure that'll change down the road. But I come from Boston where the the MBTA in Boston is basically someone tying six porta potties together with a shoelace <laughs> and dragging it behind a, a golf cart with a crazy man named Larry driving. I mean, it's... <laughs> And I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but it was absolute hell. I lived there for four years. I was on a train once, and, and we were parked at the station for like 20 minutes, and I go out, and the, the train conductor is asleep, and just the things you see... Oh my God. The, the train stops short there, and like all these bottles roll along the floor. You can tell what train line you're on based on how sticky the floor is, like, yeah. and, and you don't get to where you're going, ever. Whereas Metro is clean, the people are nice, the people... My favorite thing about DC people, they understand that you're supposed to stand on the right side of the escalator and walk on the left. And if you don't, you get yelled at. Yeah. Oh, my mother visited this past weekend oh, and no. I love her to death. But she's, she, she's sweet, she's innocent, she's a little bit ditzy from time to time, and she was standing in the escalator. It's like, Mom, come on, Mom, Mom. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I'm just... Just looking around daydreaming, so finally I pretend not to know her, but I, I love the Metro. <laughs> you know, I was in Shanghai earlier this year, and I had told the, the miners that the thing I really wanted to see was the Maglev train, which goes 286 yeah. miles an mm-hmm. hour, only a couple runs per day, and I timed my flight such that I'd get to ride the fastest one of the day. It was nuts being able to go at ground speeds that high, because you know, think about it, planes take off at 170, 180 miles an hour. I've never been on something moving that quickly, that close to the ground, and seeing things in your frame of reference change mm-hmm. at speed that quickly is, is absurd. And was it a smooth ride? I have yet to be on one. It was shakier than I thought, I, huh. it, which surprised me. The ride was only 7 minutes 46 seconds long. It goes 19 miles between Pudong Airport and downtown Shanghai. That's crazy. Wow. It, it's nuts, though, and it, it just goes up in speed and then goes back down. But it's very shaky and, and a little bit louder than I thought. Okay. Well... Perhaps we'll see one to Baltimore and then up to New York in yeah. the next uh, 50 years. Yeah, not going to Not going to hold your breath, are you? I would hold my breath for Hyperloop first. Um, so, <laughs> Matthew, you should... Didn't see that coming. Yeah, well. <laughs> Doing, I didn't go into the flying cars thing on it's this Friday. one. It's Friday. Um, Matthew, you shared some um, really fun terms earlier. And I, I would like to hear just a, off the top of your head a quick power ranking of your favorite meteorological terms. You dropped something, what was it, Thunder? Thunder showers earlier. Uh, thunder snow. Thunder snow. Power it's, rankings. Best terms. 
I, okay, best term I have to say is haboob. Yes, it's real. Yep. Yes, it's spectacular. But in reality, it's just a dust storm. A fancy name for dust storm. I was in a haboob earlier this year. And when you're writing an article about a haboob, it's tough to keep a straight face, but you have to. Uh, thunder snow, I love. I'm obsessed with. It's when you have something called conditional symmetric instability, which is basically slant-wise thunderstorms in the atmosphere, a little bit tilted, and that can give rise to thunder and lightning while it's actually snowing outside. So that's a cool one. Bomb cyclone. Stop sending me hate mail about this. I did not come up with that term. It's a real thing. Meteorological bombs are just systems that rapidly intensify at the rate of 24 millibars of air pressure or more within 24 hours. Basically translated, that means it's it's getting stronger a lot more quickly and can produce decent snow and rain at the mid-latitude. So it's a real thing. I'm trying to think of any others. I can think of some, but this is probably a PG-rated show, so we'll, we'll yeah, keep it good for now. Yeah, we'll keep it that way. Yeah, we'll, mm, it yeah. Yeah. we'll do it after hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, here's a special message from the Association of American Railroads. The biggest thing about freight rail isn't the 6,000 horsepower locomotives. But is it the 140,000 mile rail network? It's not, but that is also big. It's the technology they use to move goods across the country safely, efficiently, and sustainably. Visit AAR.org to learn how freight rail is delivering the future of transportation today. Not tomorrow? First today. So, uh, in addition to listening to NPR in the morning, uh, where else can people track your work? Uh, Twitter. Follow me at Matthew Capucci. I know last name's tough to spell, but Cappuccino, except without the no. So, follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Of course, follow me in the Capital Weather Gang. We're always happy to have folks following along. Send us your questions, your pictures. And in the meantime, too, well, we'll we'll see where the weather takes me. I'll be quite literally wherever the wind blows me. So, look around in your neck of the woods. Great. So, we'll look forward to your great, uh, refreshing weather forecasts uh hopefully every other day i think is when i'm hearing them right now um you're also doing a lot more video uh, on the air as well which is great to see at your twitter feed and also um, at washington post through the capital weather gang thank you to washington post for letting you come on to our show today um yeah and where can people find you greg uh, at av greg arm and you can find me at smarter transpo and find the mobility podcast at mobility podcast on twitter and mobilitypodcast.com and we are on Spotify, Stitcher, Sound, but you're already listening to this, so you probably already know. Yeah, all, all of the above, right? All of the above. All right, well, thank you again, Matthew, for your time, and have a great weekend. My pleasure, you as well.